Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Alright, so in this episode, I'll be covering the go-home episode of Monday Night Raw before Over the Edge 1999. Now, obviously, anyone who has even remotely followed the WWF slash WWE for any prolonged period of time will likely know exactly what happens at Over the Edge, but it's next up on the timeline, so I'm not just going to avoid it. I will say, though, I usually have a guest co-host for the episodes of the podcast where I cover a pay-per-view and the following night's episode of Raw, but you know what? Gosh darn it. For some reason, no one really wants to do that episode with me, so I'll probably be flying solo. But don't worry, though, I'll mix in some more book passages and some audio clips as well to kind of break things up a little bit more. And in case you're wondering, yes, I will be reviewing a live feed from the night of Over the Edge, not the version on the WWE Network, which, shall we say, edits out quite a bit. And just to be clear, I'm not covering the original broadcast in an attempt to be disrespectful or shocking or edgy or any of that bullshit. I'm doing it because I don't think it's fair to watch the WWE's sanitized version and just pretend like what happened didn't actually happen. It happened, and it affected everyone there in Kansas City that night, so I fully plan on taking us back to Over the Edge and revisiting the show, for better or for worse, mostly worse. I personally haven't watched the show since that very night back in 1999. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have it on a VHS tape I recorded back at my childhood home somewhere. And let's just say that I'm not exactly looking forward to going back to that fateful night. But I do it for you, the listeners, and I hope I can do the show justice for you all, so stay tuned for that. Also, on a related note, by the way, I feel like there were some pretty crazy coincidences which occurred during this episode of Raw, and I might just be reading too much into things because I have the benefit of hindsight now. But tweet me or email me if you agree or disagree after you listen to this episode. At the very least, some of the stuff that happens on the show, I think, is a bit spooky, but I'll just leave it at that for now. So anyway, getting into why we're here, before we dive into Monday Night Raw, did you know that there was actually a pay-per-view the night before this show aired? Yes, that's right. On Sunday, May 16th, 1999, the WWF presented the first-ever version of their pay-per-view called No Mercy. However, chances are you completely missed it because it took place in Manchester, England, and it was shown exclusively in the United Kingdom. Now, at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, wait, they did a UK-only pay-per-view called No Mercy? Don't they do a pay-per-view in the United States in October of this same year that's also called No Mercy? To which I say, uh, well, yes, that's exactly what they did. Apparently, they must have really liked that title because they did indeed use it twice in a five-month span. Not to mention the fact that it's also the name of the best wrestling video game ever created. But of course, as is usually the custom for these shows, 
you really didn't miss very much because they tend to treat them as glorified house shows. And in case you need proof of that, some of the matches you got here were Kane versus Midian, Steve Blackman versus Draws, and Gilberg versus Tiger Ali Singh. Clearly some real barn burners there. There were a few noteworthy moments, though. For starters, Mankind cut a pretty entertaining promo where he gave a shout-out to a certain local favorite who had been having some health difficulties around this time. Well, Manchester, UK, in addition to being the hometown of Kay Parker, also happens to be the hometown of a very famous wrestler named the British Bulldog. Very little known fact, I actually had the second match of my career against Davy Boy Smith right here in England. I'm sorry, that was New England. But I had a chance to speak to Davy Boy today when I flew in. Would you like to know what he said to me? He said, Cactus... Would you please hang up the damn phone and let me get back to sleep? Right. You see, I've forgotten about the time change, but if he would have spoken to me, I'm sure he would have said, I want you to go out there and kick a little bit of ass in Manchester, UK. Interesting. Remember that the British Bulldog was fired from WCW by Eric Bischoff while he was in the hospital fighting for his life, but having Mick Foley reference him here certainly makes it seem like the WWF is willing to keep the lines of communication open with Davy Boy Smith. Will we ever see the Bulldog back in a WWF ring? I suppose you'll just have to wait and find out. And in another noteworthy moment, since they were in England, Shane McMahon unretired the European Championship and put it on the line in a match against X-Pac. But unfortunately for Pac, Shane was able to retain the belt thanks to interference from Triple H and China. Still, though, not a bad match. Also, Sable was scheduled to face Tori, but she said that she had developed a chest cold, which prompted Jerry Lawler to amusingly state that, in her case, that could be fatal. Pretty funny line. And so, once again, she had Nicole Bass replace her, and naturally, Nicole squashed Tori very quickly. So why do I even bring this up? Well, it turns out that this is Sable's final appearance in the WWF for more than four years. Her final, quote-unquote, match was last week in the evening gown match on Raw against Deborah, where Shawn Michaels declared Deborah the winner, even though she got her gown torn off. But tonight at No Mercy, this would be the last time we would see Sable in the WWF until she eventually returns in 2003. Who would have thought that it would all end for Sable at a UK-only pay-per-view? Crazy times. And in a funny side note, her husband Mark Merrow actually had his final WWF appearance five months prior at the Capital Carnage pay-per-view, which also took place in England. I'm assuming the Marrows must really enjoy the United Kingdom because they never seem to want to get back on the plane once they arrive. Must be big fans of the steak and kidney pie. But alright, so, with no mercy having been covered, let's get into... Uh, the go-home episode of Monday Night Raw before this Sunday's Over the Edge pay-per-view. 
It is Monday, May 17th, 1999, and we are pre-taped six days in advance from National Car Rental Center in Sunrise, Florida, although they call it Fort Lauderdale on the broadcast tonight. Kind of like how every time the WWE does a show at the Allstate Center, they say they're in Chicago, when in actuality they're in Rosemont, Illinois, about 20 miles away. But anyway, some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include... Two versions of the Armageddon pay-per-view, the one in 2002 and the one in 1999, which is best remembered for the WWF's first instance of intentional female nudity in the United States, but we'll get there eventually. Three episodes of SmackDown and four episodes of Raw, most notably the one from November 19th, 2007, which saw the return of Chris Jericho after a two-year absence from the company doing his Save Us Y2J gimmick. Hey, whatever happened to that guy anyway? Huh. And typically, we begin the show with a recap of what happened the previous week, but not this time. Instead, we immediately go into the opening credits, followed by the pyro and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include I'll be playing with Yo Mama tonight, Eat Me Raw, Michael Cole is God, My Mom is on the Ho Train, Obi-Wan Jabroni, Triple H, next corporate champ and oh sir, if you only knew. Tie-dye guy, which makes sense because, as you might imagine, the superfan and Tampa resident known as Tie-dye guy was indeed in attendance for this show. And finally, I swear to Christ this sign was actually shown in the arena. Owen, enough is enough. Kill yourself. I mean, holy shit. Let's just say that I hope that fan ended up regretting that one because, wow. But we officially kick off the show with a six-man tag team match. The Road Dog Jesse James, and the WWF Tag Team Champions X-Pac and Kane versus D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry, and Billy Gunn, who are accompanied by Ivory. And let me ask you this. Could the team of D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry, and Billy Gunn be called Lowdown Sexual Ass? I dare say it could. It probably shouldn't, but it could. It could. Just, just think about it. So initially, the two DX members, Road Dog and X-Pac, come to the ring together, and immediately on commentary, Jerry Lawler echoes my own sentiments when he says, quote, Is that it, JR? That's what's left of DX? Ha ha! I mean, hey, we were all thinking it. And as soon as the bell rings, we immediately get loud D'Lo sucks chants from the crowd, so even though D'Lo hasn't really been on Raw very much over the past few months, he's still pretty over with the fans. Must be all the head wiggling. And speaking of not being on Raw lately, this is Mark Henry's first match back on the show since January 11th, more than four months ago. Now, obviously, that's because he's been out with an injury, but it's good to have sexual chocolate back after all this time. So anyway, this is a pretty fun six-man tag team match that goes for about six minutes. However, eventually the whole thing pretty much just devolves into a schmoz with everyone brawling with each other. And then, to further escalate the carnage... All six guys go out on the floor and continue fighting there, with Kane and Mark Henry actually brawling into the crowd. And at this point, I assumed we were going to hear the bell ring to signal the end of the match, but instead what we got was the corporate ministry's music. So yes, with Kane and Mark Henry still fighting in the crowd, Shane McMahon, the big boss man, the acolytes, Midian, and Viscera emerge from backstage. Now, noticeably, the only members of the group who appear to be missing are The Undertaker, Triple H, and China. so you may want to remember that for just a few moments from now. So the corporate ministry enters the ring, and Shane grabs a microphone. 
He tells us that the Union is experiencing a bit of car trouble, so none of them have arrived at the arena yet. So, first of all, my main question after hearing that would be, Mankind, Big Show, Test, and Ken Shamrock all carpool together? I feel like that would be quite the interesting ride, but I digress. Presumably Shane's point was that the corporate ministry somehow sabotaged the Union's car to prevent them from getting to the building on time, and I guess maybe Midian was in the parking lot of their hotel slashing their tires, who knows. But because none of them are here, the Union will not be able to protect Vince McMahon. And so Shane then drops the mic, and we quickly cut backstage, where Vince is with a nervous Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. The Stooges then immediately lock the door and push a couch in front of it, and then we cut to commercial. And so when we return from break, we quickly check in with Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler, and they tell us that we have two very interesting matches scheduled for tonight. The Undertaker versus The Rock in a casket match, and in your main event, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus Triple H. And clearly, those two matches are being given away for free on television, because they'll never draw any money. But from there, we then cut backstage once again, where the corporate ministry has found Vince's locker room, and our camera shots then cut back and forth between Shane's crew outside the office and Vince and the Stooges inside the office. And in fact, I'll just go ahead and play for you what happens next. So as you heard there, with the corporate ministry banging on the door, Patterson tells Vince to open the closet door and see if there's anything inside they can use as a weapon. So Vince opens the door, but when he does that, The Undertaker, Triple H, and China jump out, which gives us the unintentionally funny line from Jerry Lawler, The Undertaker was in the closet! Hashtag phrasing. Also, if all three of them were hiding in the closet the entire time, why did Shane even bother going through the whole ordeal of cutting a promo and telling Vince that he was coming? I mean, in theory, couldn't The Undertaker, Triple H, and China have just jumped out at any point and kicked Vince's ass since they were in the closet the whole time? Kinda bizarre. But anyway, Taker grabs Vince by the throat, at which point the lights in the office go out, and we can no longer see anything, so we cut to a commercial. And when we come back, we see that Vince has been loaded onto a stretcher, with Patterson and Briscoe helping to push him into an ambulance. To which I say, Taker beat the living shit out of Vince... But Triple H and China couldn't incapacitate the Stooges? Other than their shirts being a little bit messed up, Patterson and Briscoe are completely fine walking right next to Vince's stretcher, so really that kind of makes Hunter and China look pretty weak if you ask me. Just saying. But so from there, we go back into the arena for our next match, Val Venus and the WWF Intercontinental Champion, The Godfather, accompanied by Six Hoes, versus Jeff Jarrett and the Blue Blazer, and they are accompanied by your new WWF Women's Champion, Deborah. And Jesus Christ, when the Blue Blazer makes his entrance, well, just take a listen. Oh, you're good. 
So, yes, as you heard there, when the Blue Blazer was making his entrance, they cut away to the backstage area to show an ambulance with Jim Ross telling us that he would update us as soon as he had any information on Vince McMahon's condition. I mean, I'm not alone in finding that to be a creepy coincidence, right? I think that is pretty fucked up if you ask me, folks. But anyway, on a lighter note, the Blue Blazer is in the ring for the majority of the match, and thankfully we get some of the classic Owen Hart spots, like when he puts his leg on the back of his opponent's neck and backflips onto his feet. And also my personal favorite, that move he does when his opponent has him in an arm ringer, and he does a rolling somersault followed by that little kip up on his head, and then he reverses it into an arm ringer of his own. Always love that sequence of moves. But ultimately, of course, we had to have some shenanigans. So with the Blue Blazer and the Godfather in the ring, Nicole Bass made her way down to ringside, and, well, I'll just play what happens next. Uh-oh, Nicole Bass, walking with a pose here. Watch your puppies, Debra, cross body. And uh, Nicole Bass, well, look how big she is. She's trying to make chow out of Debra's puppies. But look, now, you got to admit, Debra's the lady champion here. Whoa, oh, oh. Jeff Jarrett knocked off the... The uh, ring and inverted. There's been a lot of teamwork here with the Blue Blazers. Almost with a ooh, a step off. There's a Death Valley driver. He got him. And I don't know where Owen Hart's head is tonight, but it wasn't with Jeff Cherry. Okay, so what you just heard there was Nicole Bass coming down to ringside and getting in Deborah's face, which distracted Jeff Jarrett. Meanwhile, back in the ring, the Godfather Irish whipped the Blue Blazer into Jarrett, knocking him down to the arena floor, and from there, Godfather nailed the Blazer with a Death Valley driver, and that was enough to score the one, the two, and the three. Your winners of the match, the team that may or may not be called Supply and Demand, the Godfather, and Val Venus. And why did I play the finish for you? Well, for obvious reasons, this is the last ever televised match for Owen Hart. I wish he had gone out with a win, but hey, what can you do, I guess? For the record, though, Owen's final match is actually a non-televised match at a house show on May 22nd, the night before Over the Edge, where he and Jarrett defeat Edge and Christian in Chicago. So yes, he actually does win his final match, albeit one that not a lot of people saw, but that was good to find out when I was doing my research. But needless to say, I'll be covering the whole saga with Owen Hart in the next episode on both Over the Edge and the subsequent episode of Raw, so stay tuned for that because it will be... Well, it'll be... it'll be something. But now, let's shift gears for the moment, and let's get back to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat, because this directly ties into our next match on Raw. So last night on Heat, Draws and Prince Albert were facing Gangrel and Christian, and we got the surprise return of someone we haven't seen in more than a month. That would have been, uh, that would have been scary and interesting to watch, but scary. Wait a minute, what? That's Ryan Shamrock. We haven't seen Ryan Shamrock in many weeks. 
down here in a lovely evening dress, but the, we, qu the question is why? It looks like she's got the eyes on draws in it. The last time we saw her may have been six weeks ago. She was sacrificed by the ministry, but now a distraction and Gangrel with the Russian leg sweeping. Nails Prince Albert for good measure. And wait a minute now. The referee is distracted. Look behind, Jim. Up on the shoulders. And not a legal part of this match. Good times. Christian down into draws. 2-3. This one is over. Well, I was looking forward to it. A good long match here, but we got a good short match. Could have been a tremendous contest, but with the help of Ryan Shamblin. Wait a minute, wait a minute. There's PMS and, and meat. Has Ryan Shamblin joined PMS? Well, it looks like they're high-fiving and celebrating. And Prince Albert and Cross oh, are boy. taking issue. They better, they better head for higher ground oh, than PMS. Got He's got that needle out. PMS. So we hadn't seen Ryan Shamrock since the April 5th episode of Raw, where the Ministry of Darkness sacrificed her, but she turned up on Sunday Night Heat, where she distracted Draws, enabling the Brood to pick up the victory. And from there, she then walked to the top of the ramp, where she met up with Meat and PMS. She then shared high fives with Terry and Jacqueline. So yes, it appears that Ryan Shamrock has indeed joined PMS. And clearly, the wrestling world will never be the same. And so, after a commercial break, that leads us into our next match. Meet, accompanied by Terry, Jackie, and Ryan, versus union member Test. Which one has the worst four-letter ring name? You be the judge. Also, by the way, Test is now here, so clearly the union's car troubles have been cleared up, with no further explanation whatsoever, mind you, so that's good to know. And speaking of Test, during this match he busts out a move that I don't think I've ever seen before. Rolling side Russian leg sweeps. He hit one, then he held on to meat, brought him to his feet, and he hit another one. So clearly, test equals ring technician. Quick question for you here, though. How much time would you expect a match between test and meat to get? I mean, it's the Attitude Era. These guys are mid-carders at best, so two minutes, maybe three minutes at most? Well, somehow, they let these guys wrestle for six minutes. I think that's how you know that the WWF just doesn't give a fuck anymore. We're going to give you test and meat for six minutes, and what are you going to do about it? Switch to Nitro? Yeah, fucking right. Buckle up for some sweet meat action, bitches. But anyway, the match is actually not bad, and the finish came when Test set meat up for a pump handle slam, but before he could hit it, Jacqueline went to the top rope and dropkicked Test in the back, right in front of referee Teddy Long, resulting in a disqualification. Your winner of the match is Test. And after the match, Test began to confront Jackie, but that allowed Meat to sneak up on him and hit him with a reverse DDT. Meat and Jackie then started putting the boots to Test, at which point, Tori emerged from backstage. So JR and Lawler then started hyping up the fact that Tori is going to become the fourth member of PMS. But no, instead she threw Ryan Shamrock to the ground and nailed Jackie with a forearm to the face. PMS and Meat then retreated backstage, leaving Test alone in the ring with Tori, and, in a moment I absolutely do not remember, the commentators played this up as though Tori came to Test's rescue because she has a crush on him. Do we ever get a Test-Tori romance? Somehow I doubt it, but stay glued to your televisions to find out. So after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where we see legendary Miami Dolphins quarterback Dan Marino in the crowd taking in tonight's action. 
and I'm sure he just loved being acknowledged right after the segment with the walking sex slave who just wrestled, but hey, good for him. Good for him. And from there, the glass breaks, and your WWF champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin, headed out from backstage to his usual massive pop from the crowd. And unlike Dan Marino, by the way, Stone Cold has actually won a championship. Boom. Got him there. Got him. But anyway, in case you need a reminder, this Sunday at Over the Edge, Stone Cold will put his title on the line in a match against The Undertaker, where both Vince McMahon and Shane McMahon will be special guest referees. But before he gets there, Austin must face Triple H tonight, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Last night on Heat, Shane McMahon said he had a vision when he made the match between Stone Cold Steve Austin and Triple H. Triple H, as far as you're concerned, you've always had every ounce of ability it takes to get to the top of the World Wrestling Federation. And finally, someone has pissed you off enough to get your ass to the top. But I will say this. Shane McMahon's vision of this match is just a little bit different than mine. My vision of this match is you coming down here and me putting this foot in your ass. Man, a rattlesnake is intense tonight. And as far as China goes, seeing as that Stone Cold Steve Austin is an equal opportunity ass kicker, John, if you stick your nose in this match, you will receive the bonus plan because this foot will go where? In your ass. Bonus plan? And I'll tell you, folks, the rattlesnake means it. That being said, going in over the edge, two referees, Shane McMahon and Vince McMahon, it really don't make a rat's ass to Stone Cold Steve Austin who the damn referee is. Undertaker, you come out here, throw me off the damn stage and try to cripple me. I'll tell you what, you son of a bitch. You roll your ass. You roll your ass and over the edge. And you talk about making the ultimate sacrifice out of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Eh, eh, that just ain't going to happen. You will know. But Austin 316 says, I just whipped your ass, and that's all I got to say about that. Over the edge, Stone Cold Steve Austin will beat The Undertaker's ass, and that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. And that's going to be a pay-per-view this Sunday. Austin and The Undertaker. this now. Well, what does it look like? Shane McMahon, the boy of wonder, who's already sent his own daddy to the hospital. He's got a lot of backup here. And evil in his heart. I'm not going to look this at all. Austin, I've heard enough of your yapping. Remember one thing, Stone Cold. Undertaker, hold on one second. Undertaker, hold on. Stop this chant, he'll take it out of Austin. Austin, remember one thing. 
as one of the special guest referees this Sunday at Over the Edge if you lay one single finger on me. If you even breathe on me, Wrong Austin, I will disqualify your ass and award The Undertaker the World Wrestling Federation Championship. Uh oh And as far as that other special guest referee goes, huh, Austin, you may be seeing him before this Sunday night. Austin, you might be seeing Vince tonight. What? What do you mean by that? Austin, maybe I can arrange for you to have a hospital bed right next to Vince this evening. Go That's get him, boys. Means. Uh oh, go get him, boys. Oh, here, come on. God almighty, this uh -oh. is not right. The whole corporate ministry coming out here. Wait, hey, wait a minute. What? Look behind Shane. Look at Shane behind you. It's Kim Shamrock. It's Kim Shane. The world's most dangerous man representing the union has got the boy wonder and the boss man. And then look at the corporate ministry. They're going to dismantle. Oh, no, look at Kim Shamrock in the union. There's a union, the rich top. The bitch hell and mankind and tents. These guys are in their street talk right out of the car. Look at this. And the Undertaker had a perfect opportunity to get away. is telling the Undertaker that you better come get your man here. What are you going to do, Taker? A great opportunity for the Undertaker to come back. Yeah. Wait a minute. So as you heard there, once Stone Cold finished his promo, the corporate ministry arrived at the top of the ramp. And then, much like what he said last month at Backlash when he was the special guest referee, Shane McMahon reiterated that if Austin lays a finger on him at Over the Edge, he has the power to disqualify Stone Cold and award the belt to The Undertaker. But then, Shane goes a bit further and says that Austin can actually join the other special guest referee, Vince McMahon, in the hospital tonight, and the corporate ministry starts heading toward the ring. However, when they do that, all four members of the union emerge from backstage and brawl with Shane's group. And unfortunately for Paul Bearer, he wandered a little bit too far away because Stone Cold then tossed him into the ring and taunted The Undertaker by hitting Bearer with a stunner. By the way, Paul Bear is really turning into a worker over the past few weeks, huh? I mean, last week he had that match with The Big Show, and this week he's taking a stunner from Stone Cold. Not bad for a guy who is kinda morbidly obese at this point. So yes, the union and the corporate ministry brawl to the backstage area as The Undertaker stares down at Stone Cold, and that is how we go to break. But remember, both Austin and Taker have matches tonight, so we haven't seen the last of either man. And that actually provides a fitting segue because when we return from commercial, it is now time for the casket match, The Undertaker versus The Rock, who is still wearing that cast because he has a quote-unquote broken arm. 
And somehow, despite having a broken arm, the WWF has cleared him to wrestle one week later anyway. Quality doctors they have on payroll there. And by the way, a casket match on the show before Over the Edge. Again, am I reading too much into this? Never mind, let's just move on. So for those scoring at home, this is the 10th ever casket match, but only the second one ever on Monday Night Raw. And as you might expect, The Undertaker has been involved in every casket match so far, with his record standing at 5 wins, 3 losses, and 1 no contest. And yes, you heard that correctly, they actually did a casket match without a finish back on the October 19th, 1998 episode of Raw, when Taker and Kane ended up destroying the casket. That is some impressive Vince Russo booking right there. So The Undertaker is noticeably limping as he walks to the ring, and I'm wondering if he somehow hurt himself during that last segment, even though he wasn't really even involved in that brawl. I didn't notice him limping last week during the main event of Raw, which actually occurred the night before this show, because remember, they go live on Monday, then pre-tape on Tuesday the day after. So I'm assuming he must have somehow gotten hurt in that last segment. Not good times for the dead man. By the way, I also have to note that The Rock gets a huge pop from the fans, and I feel like that's particularly impressive considering the fact that he hasn't had any promo time since the SmackDown pilot about three weeks ago. Remember, we're still in the days before he would cut a promo every week running down his opponent, but still, he's massively over anyway. I dare say the future looks bright for The Rock. And shortly after the match begins, we actually cut away from it for just a few moments and go backstage, where we can see that the Union and the Corporate Ministry are still brawling with each other, so this is quite the intense rivalry so far, even though both these factions have only existed for less than three weeks. And then back in the ring... Rock slammed The Undertaker and he went for the people's elbow, but Taker then did his patented Michael Myers sit-up routine. However, Rock, not to be outdone, kicked Taker in the face and then he hit the elbow anyway. Pretty funny stuff and a little bit of ingenuity there from the great one. But as soon as he hit the people's elbow, Triple H, China, and Shane McMahon then made their ways down to ringside. And when Rock and Taker exited the ring... Let's just say that Triple H was quite eager to take advantage of the fact that casket matches are no disqualification. In fact, for the first time, Triple H busts out what is still his signature weapon to this day. So let's take a listen to what happens next. Cage, and there's a rock, and the match is over. The Undertaker wins. Mr. Triple H. 
Okay, so what you heard there was Triple H interfering in the match by putting Rock's already broken arm on the steel steps and smashing his cast with a sledgehammer. Yes, that's right. This is Triple H's first ever time using a sledgehammer as a weapon. And by the way, this isn't the usual gimmick sledgehammer spot we're accustomed to seeing from Hunter these days where he kind of puts his hand over the butt of it and jabs it into someone's stomach. In this case, he literally lifts the sledgehammer up over his own head and swings it right down onto Rock's cast. And obviously, I'm quite sure the one he swings into Rock's cast here is fake because, well, he clearly would have legitimately broken his arm if it wasn't. But keep that thought in mind for just a moment from now because we aren't done with the sledgehammer just yet. So Hunter then helps Taker put the rock inside of the casket, meaning that your winner of the match is indeed The Undertaker. And as soon as they slam the door shut, Shane McMahon then pulls out some sort of key, which allows him to turn it and seal rock inside of the casket, much like what Taker and Paul Bearer did to the Ultimate Warrior back in 1991. And once rock has been sealed in, Triple H then throws the casket down off its pedestal and onto the ground, and I'm assuming there was some trickery here that allowed Rock to somehow maneuver out of the casket, and likely under the ring, since the casket was set up right next to it. But still, it was it was well done. Well done spot. However, Triple H is not content to merely knock the casket down on the ground, because once he does that, he then takes the sledgehammer and proceeds to smash the casket with it many, many times. And as you heard in that clip, that was an actual sledgehammer smashing into the casket, so I think they managed to swap in a real one shortly after Hunter used that gimmick one to hit Rock's cast. So yes, Triple H then wears the shit out of the casket with the sledgehammer, and he actually makes a hole in it, which kind of ruins the illusion that Rock is still inside, but hey, it looked cool. It looked really cool. And after a quick commercial, we cut to footage from During the Break, where WWF officials wheeled the casket backstage. And we then return live, where Sergeant Slaughter and Tony Gurria are working to pry the casket door open. Fun fact for you, Tony Gurria was actually one of the people who attempted to free the Ultimate Warrior from the casket in that aforementioned segment from back in 91, so apparently he's the WWF's resident casket expert, I guess. But anyway, they open the casket lid, and we don't see the carnage of what's inside, but we do see Slaughter and Gurria reacting to it as if they've just seen something horrible, and Slaughter yells for someone to call an ambulance. So perhaps Rock and Vince will be meeting up at the hospital after all. Gotta say, though, this was a really effective segment, and I can see why Triple H still uses the sledgehammer to this very day, because this segment really took his character to a different level. Instead of just being the corporate hanger-on like he has been since WrestleMania, he looked like a goddamn sadistic lunatic here. Truthfully, his feud with The Rock up to this point has kind of been in the background of the whole union-corporate ministry rivalry, but this was certainly a great way to get more interest in their match at Over the Edge. I can't help but wonder, though, how the fuck could Rock even show up for that match at the pay-per-view after he was basically almost murdered here? I mean, you get put into a tiny box and smacked with a sledgehammer ten times, and then you just show up six days later like it's no big deal. Even for wrestling, that's pretty nuts. But still, great segment, though. So we then go back into the arena for our next match, and it is a six-man tag team match. Brood members Gangrel, Edge, and Christian versus the Hardy Boys and Michael P.S. Hayes. Now, remember that the Brood gave Michael Hayes a bloodbath on the pilot episode of SmackDown, but then, last night on Heat, they attempted to do it again, but the Hardys came to Hayes' rescue, and it was actually the Brood who ended up getting a bloodbath of their own. 
And let me be the first to say, welcome to Monday Night Raw in the Attitude Era, Matt and Jeff Hardy. Yes, this is indeed their first Raw match during our timeline, though they have competed quite a bit on Heat and Shotgun Saturday Night. I will say, though, the Hardys have had a few stray matches on Raw in the past prior to the Attitude Era, losing to the Headbangers on the February 17th, 1997 episode of Raw. And interestingly, they were scheduled to have a match on the October 6th, 1997 episode against the Truth Commission, but instead, we got the Raw debut of Kane, one night after Bad Blood, and he just beat the shit out of both teams by himself. And as for Michael P.S. Hayes, well, he looks like a complete idiot here. The Hardys wear tight-fitting t-shirts and baggy-ass Jenko jeans, and Michael Hayes is also running with that look as well. Essentially, he's a 40-year-old man who's dressing up as a teenager. What an asshole. However, I suppose the silver lining is that he is now no longer calling himself Doc Hendricks, so that's a plus. However, I will say, this was a truly fun match, mostly because Michael Hayes' involvement in it was actually pretty minimal. At one point in the match, Matt Hardy made the hot tag to Jeff, and Christian then made the hot tag to Edge, and when both guys entered, Edge ran across the ring and nailed Jeff Hardy with what may be the best spear I've ever seen from Edge. I actually put a video of it on our Twitter page, at Pod, so you can judge for yourself. Edge hits the spear perfectly, and Jeff whips his head back so his hair goes flying. It was just, it was a thing of beauty. But shortly after that, the match devolves into a bit of a schmoz, but it does lead to a fun spot where Michael Hayes backdrops Matt Hardy over the top rope, where he then lands on all three members of the brood. This leads to all six men brawling at ringside, and so referee Jimmy Corderas proceeds to just throw the match out entirely, presumably resulting in a double disqualification or maybe a no contest, who knows. What I do know is that this was a great introduction for the Hardy Boys. As I mentioned before, as evidenced by the television ratings, many more people watch Raw than Heat or Shotgun Saturday Night, so this would have been many fans' first exposure to Matt and Jeff, and I'm sure they captivated a lot of people on this night with their signature crazy offense, particularly from Jeff, who managed to get in a swanton bomb and a springboard splash. And hey, kudos to the people in charge for letting this match go six and a half minutes, considering the Hardys are basically unknowns at this point, and the Brood have been kind of faltering since they left the ministry last month. Good decision, good match, can't ask for anything more than that. And so, after that match concludes, we then cut backstage, where The Rock is on a stretcher about to be loaded into an ambulance. And what a trooper, it looks like Rock has even done a blade job to put over Triple H's casket smashing. And then, Jim Ross on commentary informs us that the sledgehammer broke through the casket and hit Rock in the head, so I repeat, how is he not dead? Sweet Jesus. But yes, it appears that the corporate ministry has succeeded in sending both Rock and Vince to the hospital, so the only question remaining is, will Stone Cold be next? We shall see. And after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where your WWF Hardcore Champion Al Snow is heading to the ring, accompanied by Head. And we actually haven't seen Al Snow on Raw since the night after Backlash, so the WWF helpfully airs a quick recap video of his feud with Hardcore Holly since then, with most of it happening on Sunday Night Heat. So buckle up, because all of this actually happened. Okay, here we go. So at Backlash, Al Snow pinned Hardcore Holly to win the Hardcore title, but he was holding Head in his hand when he did it. As such, Al Snow proclaimed that Head was actually the Hardcore champion. 
So Hardcore Holly, who wanted a rematch for the title, acted as a referee for a match between Al Snow and Head. And yes, I swear this actually happened. If you watch the May 9th episode of Heat, you will indeed see Al Snow wrestle Head. And thankfully, Al wins. However, since he had felt betrayed by Head in the interim, Al had found a new friend, which was the taxidermied head of an actual one-eyed deer, which he named Pierre. And last night on Heat, Hardcore Holly stole Pierre from Al Snow and smashed him into one of the ring posts, sending dust flying everywhere, including onto the poor fans in the front row. A distraught Al Snow then asked Dr. Francois Petit to save Pierre, but to no avail. So that brings us to tonight. So Al Snow has brought a box with him to the ring, and you can probably guess what's inside. He also has a separate plastic bag, and we'll find out the reason for that in just a moment as well. But I have to point out that he is also wearing a black armband that says Pierre on it. So again, we have another allusion to death on this show. And if that wasn't enough for you, take a listen to Al Snow's promo here, and then just consider it in the context of what happens on next week's episode of Raw. That's the Al Snow, a hardcore title story. What we're getting now, still to come here tonight. The big boss man takes on the big show. What's he, what's he doing, Keen? Who knows? As an idiot. Got an armband for Pierre. Sorry, I promised myself I wouldn't do this. Well, then don't. <laughs> You're about to cry. Pierre would want me to be strong. We're here tonight to eulogize a true superstar of the sports entertainment world, a cover boy of Field and Stream, what? a friend of the NRA, my friend, a true friend, who always kept an eye out for me. Oh, boy. You could say that Pierre was the one I, the one I love. So here we're going to pay tribute to Pierre. Oh no, is Pierre in there? I have a few of his favorite things here. Cigars. Pierre loved to smoke and I always told him they'd be the death of him. <laughs> I guess I was wrong. What's that? His reading glasses. His favorite episode of Columbo. His favorite tape, Sammy Davis Jr. You loved Sammy, didn't you? One-eyed stuff. His favorite night shirt that he wore the night of the first accident. What? Oh, no. Tire tracks. Poro Al's goofing a pet coon. Pierre will live on through me. Because Bob Holly brutally blindsided Pierre the last time that I saw a man violate an animal like that was when my class took a field trip at the sheep farm. Oh, you'd be as goofy as him if you got hit in the head with all those chairs and tables and stuff. While Pierre laid in the hospital bed that I made the staff put him in with the IV hooked up to him, and he passed on the hardcore title to me to make me the true crown prince of hardcore. That belt. He looked at me with that one good eye. They had that gleam in it like he always did. And with his dying breath, he said to me, 
Yep, that's right. Al Snow is eulogizing his dead friend, folks. And you know what? At this point, let's just quickly recap some of these strange coincidences which have occurred on this episode of Raw. Number one, that fan holding the sign telling Owen Hart to kill himself. Number two, the fact that they cut away in the middle of the Blue Blazers' entrance to show an ambulance. Number three, the fact that we had a very rare casket match on free TV. Number four, the fact that Al Snow is eulogizing his dead friend. And number five, the fact that Al is wearing a black armband with his dead friend's name on it, which, spoiler alert, you might see next week on Raw. Now, am I alone in finding all these coincidences to be creepy? Because I feel like I could be reading too much into this because we all know what happens next, but still, it's at least a little bit weird, right? I mean, was the universe trying to tell us something here? The answer is obviously no, clearly not, but still, it's, it's pretty bizarre. So anyway, thankfully, Hardcore Holly interrupts this disastrous Al Snow segment, and he's mockingly holding one of Pierre's antlers, which broke off last night on Heat. So Holly then runs into the ring, but Snow smashes him in the face with head, followed by hitting him with his snowplow finisher. Al then yells at him, quote, No more Mr. Nice Lunatic, and he says that if Holly wants a shot at the Hardcore title at Over the Edge, he's got it. So there you go, this epic feud will come to a conclusion this Sunday, at least, I certainly fucking hope it does. And after that segment finishes, we go backstage where Michael Cole was waiting outside of Stone Cold Steve Austin's locker room to get a word with the rattlesnake. But then, in an interesting moment, we get a different camera view, which shows the corporate ministry hiding around the corner, presumably waiting to ambush Austin once he opens the door. Will their plan work? Well, we cut to a commercial first, so you'll just have to stay tuned. And when we return from break, Michael Cole is indeed standing with Stone Cold, but instead of him getting jumped, the Union attacks the corporate ministry before they can ambush Austin. The factions then brawl with each other once again until a cameraman gets knocked down, cutting out the feed, and so we head right back to another commercial. And when we come back, we head into the arena for our next match, The Big Show, accompanied by fellow Union members Mankind, Ken Shamrock, and Test, versus corporate ministry member the Big Boss Man, accompanied by fellow corporate ministry members, the Acolytes and Midian, in a match where the Big Show or Big Boss Man can no longer use the word big in their name if they lose. Well, not really, but that would have been a nice stipulation. The Big Show, by the way, is wearing jorts for this match, so I guess he wasn't in the mood to dress up this week. And as soon as the bell rings, the other members of the union and the corporate ministry basically just start brawling with each other at ringside, ultimately heading right back up the ramp and to the backstage area, so I guess they won't be too much help during this match. But Bossman uses that distraction to hit Big Show several times with his nightstick, and as I mentioned, the bell just rang, and Bossman is using the nightstick on Big Show right in front of referee Mike Kyoto, but he somehow doesn't get called for a disqualification. They never said the match was no DQ, so really, it should be over. But no, onward we go. And as you might expect, the match doesn't last too much longer after that, because Big Show hits Bossman with a big boot, knocking him into the ring ropes, and when Bossman bounces back, Big Show picks him up and nails him with a chokeslam, which Jim Ross refers to as the Showstopper. And as you might expect, that was good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match... The Big Show. And as soon as the match ends, Show immediately starts walking up the ramp and heading backstage, presumably to help out his fellow union members in their continued fight with the corporate ministry. 
This Sunday at Over the Edge, there's actually going to be an eight-man tag match pitting the Union against the corporate ministry, and it certainly looks like the Union has the upper hand going in. Hooray. And then, when we return from break, well, we once again get a beaver cleavage vignette. In this one, his mother is cooking him pancakes, and then she accidentally spills a cup of water on his crotch, and, well, hilarity ensues, I guess? Gosh, Mom, your flapjacks look great! Okay. My little hairy beaver's all wet. Let me get that for you. That's better. Now we have a dry, clean, hairy beaver. Thanks, Mom. Nobody likes a sloppy beaver. So there you go. We've now gotten Sloppy Beaver onto a WWF broadcast, so check that one off your list. I feel like they keep doing these vignettes until they're eventually like, uh, shit, I think we've run out of beaver puns. I guess we have to debut them now. And certainly, we can all look forward to that. And from there, we then get footage from During the Break, where the Acolytes, Midian, and Viscera all ran out into the parking lot, jumped in a car, and drove away. But shortly after that, all four members of the Union then got into a different car and drove off after them. And I had joked earlier on about how comical the idea of the four Union guys traveling together would be, but sure enough, they all managed to fit into the same car, and in case you're wondering, Big Show was the driver. I assume he must have really had to put that seat back pretty far, but I guess that's neither here nor there. And so we then head back into the arena for our main event of the evening, and what a doozy it is, WWF champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus corporate ministry member Triple H, who is accompanied by China and Shane McMahon. And to be clear, this is a non-title match. And before Stone Cold can even make it down the ramp, Triple H runs up to him and tries to ambush him, but Austin gets the better of him and slams Hunter onto the steel. So much for that idea. Austin then rolls Triple H into the ring, and Earl Hebner calls for the bell, so our main event is indeed underway. And right off the bat, I want to mention something that Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler have been referencing all night, even before this match, and that would be Triple H's quote-unquote technical expertise. I suppose as part of Hunter's ongoing push, they've decided to put over how much of a great technical wrestler he is, which I think is fair, but it's a bit amusing that they're bringing this up on the same night that he tried to murder someone with a sledgehammer. Nothing technical about that one, folks. And that actually bears itself out in the match as well, because Austin and Hunter mostly brawl around the ring in the early going, with Hebner being rather lax when it comes to counting them out, as is typical for Attitude Era main events. However, they did eventually make their way back into the ring, with Triple H taking control by putting Stone Cold into a chin lock, at which point we got an amusing moment. So Hebner did the customary pick up the guy's arm to see if it drops three times, and Austin's arm did indeed fall down twice, but when Hebner went to drop it a third time... Stone Cold stuck a middle finger into the air. Well, I thought it was pretty funny anyway. But then, both men made their way back outside the ring, where Stone Cold threw Triple H into the commentary table, knocking a bunch of objects off it, at which point we get the line of the night. Jerry Lawler says, Our announce table's wrecked! To which Jim Ross responds by saying, And we're not even Spanish! Well played, JR. But then, after Stone Cold suplexes Triple H into the ring, out of nowhere the Undertaker's symbol begins to lower down to the mat. And sure enough, at that point, 
Taker's music plays, and he heads down to the ring, where he starts beating on Austin. And once again, although we never got an official announcement, it appears as though we have a disqualification or a no contest, but more importantly, Stone Cold is now at the mercy of The Undertaker, Triple H, China, and Shane McMahon. And, well, let's pick things up from there.
So as you heard there, The Undertaker, Triple H, China, and Shane were attempting to put Stone Cold on the symbol, and the other corporate ministry members even showed up to provide some backup. However, the Union followed right behind them, touching off a massive brawl and leaving Taker and Austin alone in the ring. And once everyone else fought to the backstage area, we saw that The Undertaker's plan had backfired because Stone Cold managed to handcuff Taker to his own symbol. And after some punches and kicks from Austin, Stone Cold motioned for the symbol to be raised up, at which point, yes, The Undertaker got a taste of his own medicine because he had been sacrificed on his own symbol. Remember, The Taker initially did the same thing to Stone Cold back on the December 7th episode of Raw, so it would appear that Austin has finally gotten his revenge. So with The Undertaker hanging from the ceiling, Stone Cold walked to the top of the ramp and flipped him off, but we could see that Taker was actually laughing despite having the tables turned on him. And as you also heard in that clip, they went ahead and dubbed in some pre-taped audio of The Undertaker laughing, which I could have done without, but still, it was a cool visual. And so we go off the air with the image of the Undertaker handcuffed to his symbol dangling over the ring. And by the way, does the dead man being up in the rafters also count as another coincidence? You know what? Fuck it. Never mind. My point is, that was an awesome way to end the show, and I really like that touch of the Undertaker laughing at what Austin did to him as opposed to reacting angrily. I think it makes sense that an evil bastard like Taker would appreciate that Austin would do to him what he's done to Stone Cold in the past. I can totally buy that. So well done, WWF. Truly a great visual image, and certainly an excellent way to get people interested heading into... <sighs> over the edge. But hey, we're not done with this episode yet, so on that note, let's take it to... The Wrap-Up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rose and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniacs. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. Cause WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So as I covered in detail on the previous episode, Nitro was preempted for the NBA playoffs last week, leaving Raw all alone on Monday night, which resulted in their highest rating ever, an absolutely absurd 8.1. This week, Nitro was back on TNT, but as you might expect, the beat went on, with Raw scoring a still ridiculous 6.34 to Nitro's 3.36. And that 3.36 rating, by the way, would be Nitro's lowest since June 30th, 1997. Ouch. But on the plus side, the NBA playoffs last week scored a 1.2, so Nitro's rating is downright impressive compared to that. And just to rub a little bit of salt in the wound here, the segment with the Rock Undertaker casket match and Triple H's sledgehammer beating ends up scoring a 7.3 quarter-hour rating, making it the most-watched head-to-head wrestling segment in the history of the Monday Night Wars up to this point. Huh, imagine that. People tune in when The Rock, The Undertaker, and Triple H are on television. What do you know? But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on Nitro instead. Rey Mysterio defeated Evan Courageous to retain his Cruiserweight Championship... David Flair defeated Buddy Lee Parker. Randy Savage and Medusa defeated Ric Flair and Charles Robinson. Now that sounds like an interesting match. Fit Finley versus Hack went to a no contest. 
in a hardcore match, and yes, another hardcore match with Hack, also went to a no contest on the previous episode of Nitro, so I'm thinking they don't really know what hardcore matches are supposed to be. Sting defeated Rick Steiner by disqualification, so Steiner retained his World Television Championship. Kurt Hennig defeated Conan in a match which somehow went for 13 minutes. Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Raven and Perry Saturn. And in your main event, new WCW World Heavyweight Champion Kevin Nash beat Diamond Dallas Page by disqualification, so he retained his title. And by the way, after that match ends, we get the infamous moment where Randy Savage starts drawing on Nash's face with lipstick, and then a fan runs into the ring, so Savage tackles him and starts punching him in the face. WCW security, always late to the party. And so that brings us to this week's excerpt from the book, The Death of WCW by Brian Alvarez and R.D. Reynolds. So for a quick backstory here, in the main event of Slamboree last week, Diamond Dallas Page retained his title against Kevin Nash by disqualification when Randy Savage interfered on DDP's behalf. But then, of all people, a returning Eric Bischoff, who hadn't been on TV for months, made a surprise appearance and he ordered the match to be restarted, at which point Nash beat Page to win the title. And so, that's where we are leading into this excerpt about tonight's episode of Nitro. Quote, Nitro was a comedy of errors the following night. Ric Flair, who had supposedly lost the presidency, was back as president because Bischoff apparently didn't have any power at all. Of course, if that was the case, the Nash title change shouldn't have been allowed to stand since Bischoff restarted the match after Page had won via DQ. Later, however, Gene Okerlund identified Bischoff as a powerful executive in WCW, though exactly what kind of power he possessed was never specified. Then, Roddy Piper gave an interview saying he was president, but later in the speech he revealed that he was the commissioner. By the time the show was over, nobody had any idea what in the hell was going on, and that included both fans at home and the people writing the storylines. End quote. And really, I suppose when you can't even accurately come up with a solution to something as basic as, who's the president of the company, you know that your booking is probably not going so well. Oh hey, who's the booker at this point in time? Oh, that's right, the guy who just put the belt on himself. Okay, then. But on that note, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. So once again, I'd have to say, pretty solid show. We actually got a really good six-man tag match with the Brood and the Hardys, and most of the angles on the show were entertaining. Stone Cold putting Taker on the symbol, Triple H kicking things up a notch and trying to murder The Rock, the Union and the Corporate Ministry going at each other all night, all good stuff. Plus, hey, we got Austin versus Triple H and The Undertaker versus The Rock. I feel like I should be fired as an Attitude Era recapper if I somehow gave a show like that a thumbs down. As usual, though, there was some crap like that awful Al Snow promo, yet another Beaver Cleavage vignette, and a match between Test and Meat somehow going for six minutes, but none of that is enough for me to recommend that you avoid the show. Quite the opposite, in fact. I think it's definitely worth a watch. The one major downside is, of course, all of those kooky coincidences that seem to be foreshadowing what happens at Over the Edge, but hey, maybe I'm just reading too much into things. In fact, feel free to tweet me at RawAttitudePod and let me know if you agree or disagree. But other than that, I'll give this episode of Raw a thumbs up for sure. And before we finish up, here are some notes from this week's issue of the Wrestling Observer. 
Behind the scenes, there's a lot of drama between Sable and the WWF, and it appears that she is looking to leave the company to try and make a name for herself in Hollywood. It should be noted that Sable's current contract with the WWF is actually not a wrestling contract. Remember, she was brought in as a valet, not a wrestler. And because of that, she's refusing to work house shows, and she pretty much has only been working pay-per-views since those provide the biggest paydays. Not surprisingly, Sable's refusal to take bumps factored into that whole scenario last week where she won the evening gown match against Deborah, but Commissioner Shawn Michaels overturned the result and gave the belt to Deborah instead. So yeah, needless to say, there will be more on this whole mess in the coming weeks. Although I couldn't help but think, hmm, Sable refused to work house shows and only does the occasional pay-per-view. I wonder if she would have ever shared that idea with anybody else, like perhaps someone she ends up marrying? Uh, no, probably not, probably not. So Dave Meltzer reports that rapper Master P has expressed an interest in getting involved in wrestling, and he's open to either the WWF or WCW. Will that ever happen? I suppose we'll find out in the coming months. Funny side note, though, just recently in October of 2019, Master P actually just bought a wrestling promotion called House of Glory, so he's still getting involved in wrestling even in the present day. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I suppose time will tell for the House of Glory. A bit of an interesting note here, WWF writer Ed Ferrara apparently gave his two weeks notice after a dispute with Vince McMahon, but Vince was actually able to calm him down and convince him to stay. I just thought it was kind of funny that there was a time when Vince McMahon felt like he couldn't live without Ed Ferrara and all of his genius ideas. And finally, this past week, Kevin Nash appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, where, funny enough, he was of course talking with Leno, who wrestled a match in WCW the previous year, and the other guest on the show, seated right next to him, was Pamela Anderson, the very woman who accompanied Nash to the ring at WrestleMania 11. Just a fun little side note there. But so, Nash went on The Tonight Show with the purpose of issuing a challenge to someone who recently returned to WCW, and, well, just take a listen. I'll challenge Bret Hart, and I know he won't do it at WCW, I'll challenge him here. On the, to wrestle on The Tonight Show? On The show? Tonight Show. I'll <laughs> challenge him on The Tonight Show, and I'll put up $250,000 of my money. $250,000 of your own money. In essence, is about 50 million Canadian. Which is, which is 50 million Canadian. Right. Is so. the exchange rate that bad? I think it is. Oh, he's Canadian. Right. He's oh, a Canadian. Oh, you know, she's part Canadian. Oh, yeah. She's one of the I won't Canadians. hold that against her, though. She's a great Canadian. Yeah. So you're going to put up 250 grand. Yes. And you want to do it. I tell you what, you bring the money to me in a briefcase. I will hold the money. I'll do it. I'm serious. I tell you what, no, I'll hold the money. So if you guys wrestle here on The Tonight Show, I will give the bag with the money in it. Or the briefcase to whoever wins? So you'll be handing me my money. Yeah, yeah. Now, who, who, should, who should Brett call to do this? Should I have him call here? Yeah. I've got some numbers on him. If, you got, if, you, if your people want to call him, I've got numbers no, really. on him. Uh, issue the challenge right now to tell him to call the time show. He's probably watching. All right, you. Brett. You name the time. $250,000. We'll do it right here. We can do it in a studio. We can do it in, in the crowd, wherever you want to do it. But don't but do it in the crowd. When do you want to do it? Next week? Whenever, if, if he'll do it, I'll do it whenever he wants to. All right, 250 to. grand. That's pretty good, 20. I'll rest you for 250 grand. <laughs> All right, you got a deal. All right. You got you to bring me the money. I'll do you it. can't wimp I'll, out I'll on your end. I'll give you a cashier's end. check. I'm no, not, no, no, I'm no, not gonna, I'm It looks not good. I'll open the bag of dough in front of everybody. All right, we'll All right. do it. All right. Kev, we'll do it. Here's the challenge. Be right back with Joe Henry right after this.
So, yes, what you just heard there was Kevin Nash challenging Bret Hart to a match on The Tonight Show, a match which eventually gets booked to take place next Monday, as in the night after Over the Edge. So you can probably figure out whether or not that match goes on as scheduled. Good lord. Yet another what-if to ponder, folks. We almost got a wrestling match on The Tonight Show at a time when that might have actually meant something. Would it have given WCW any sort of bump? Probably not, but hey, food for thought, I suppose. But so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or, if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review, because that's helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, and so, because I sometimes leave you with a clip from a show that aired during the week of the episode I cover, I will now leave you with a clip from a made-for-TV movie called The Jesse Ventura Story, which actually airs on Sunday, May 23rd, 1999. Yes, that's right, it airs the exact same night as Over the Edge. Now, normally I would save that clip for the next episode of the podcast, since it doesn't air until next week's events, but uh, needless to say... I don't think I'll be taking a detour into the Jesse Ventura story when I cover Over the Edge. Call me crazy, so I'll give it to you here. But just in case you aren't familiar with this thing, NBC decided to capitalize on wrestling's popularity by doing a biopic of the recently elected Jesse the Body Ventura. The problem is, it was absolutely atrocious. And again, this wasn't some rinky-dink TV network. This was NBC, which was easily the most-watched network on all of television in 1999. At the time, they had ER, Friends, Frasier, Will and Grace, Law and Order, just to name a few. So that makes it all the more perplexing that they half-assed this thing so badly. So as you'll hear in this clip, the guy who plays Jesse Ventura makes no effort whatsoever to even sound remotely like him, and some of the events in the film have literally nothing to do with Ventura's actual life. For example, did you know that Jesse was in the building during the Montreal Screwjob? No? Well, you'll hear it in this clip, where the wrestler playing the role of Bret Hart is named, for some reason, Captain Nice, and the wrestler in the role of Shawn Michaels is Raven, and yes, Raven is playing himself in this movie. You'll also hear Jesse talking to a sleazy promoter named Chaney, and I'm sure you can figure out who that sleazy promoter is supposed to be. Additionally, you may also want to listen for Jesse mispronouncing the word schmoz as smoz several times, And in the climactic moment at the end of this clip, when he tries to knock down the promoter's door, he angrily yells, and I quote, Come on out, you butthead! And just to be clear, this is all played completely straight. None of this is supposed to be funny. And yet, there were many laughs to be had. So anyway, enjoy that clip, and I will catch you next time for... uh, The episode where I cover Over the Edge 1999 and the following night's episode of Raw. Not exactly looking forward to it, but I will catch you next time. You got a problem with me? Sorry, Jess. They want me to give it up tonight. Here in L.A., my own hometown. 
Cap, it's not like you haven't lost here before. Yeah, this is my last match. Those are my people out there. I don't want to go out a loser. What about disqualification? The Smaz. Hey, that way everybody goes home happy. Yeah, except they got this new guy, Raven. They want to give him a good push. I've been doing this a long time. I deserve to go out with a little dignity. No way in hell does Raven go down tonight. I'm building this kid. He's got to have a great launch. Come on, the guy's been with us 18 years. Leave him something. What's in it for me? You go home tonight and tell your wife and kids you did a good thing. Oh, really? No, I'd like to know. All right, a schmoz. Yes. Jesse, you owe me one. What's this, Jesse? You rooting for the good guy? The old captain's been around a long time, Gorilla. He deserves it. A lot more than you. Why, he's taking a beating this time, though, Jesse. Don't count him out. My money says Captain gets up. You're on. You see Come on, man, you sold him out. He's supposed to be a smile.